Awesome, awesome song. Thank you very much. What a blessing. Take your Bibles this evening and go to Genesis chapter 2. We're in our series on Sunday evenings on the uh, creation event. Uh, God created all things, and this evening we come to chapter 2, which is a, a really a retelling, if you will, giving some more detail on what was told in chapter 1, particularly with regard to man, which we will touch on uh, before the evening is over. Of God's creation story given to us here in the first few chapters of Genesis, we talked last week briefly as we finished the height of creation. I mean, God created everything. He spoke and the universe came into existence. The stars, he put those out there. You read the Bible, is replete with the fact that God created ex nihilo, which means he created something from nothing. Uh, he's the only one that can do that. When we make things, we make them out of material that God put here. We don't create anything. Uh, and the reason we do that is we're created in the image of God to uh, be productive and to do things. But God created from nothing. He created all that exists. He created the earth. Uh, we read in chapter 1 how he prepared the earth. He separated the waters upper and lower. He brought forth dry land. He brought forth plant life. He brought forth the fish and, and the seas. And brought forth the animals, and then ultimately the crowning of his creation was man. And we pointed out the reason that man is the crowning uh, creation is because God did something with human beings he didn't do with any other creature. God created man in his image. In fact, we pointed out last week that there was, uh, if you will, a holy council in the Trinity. Let us create man in our image. God didn't say that about any other creatures. He just simply spoke and they were there. Uh, but with man, man was different. Humanity was different. And, and honestly, if, we, if, we're, if, if humanity is honest with itself and looks around at creation, we can see that, can't we? That God created us with dominion over the other creatures and the ability to, to rule and manage over in a stewardship capacity of what God created. And we touched on it a little bit last week, and I want to touch on it again this evening as we go into chapter 2. What is it that defines in us the image of God? What is it that God exactly, what did he do when he created us in his image? Well, we could speak on that for a long time, but I think there are two uh, overarching areas that we could put them under in a category. And one of them is the natural realm and one is the moral realm. And let's talk about the natural realm for just a moment, maybe to review and to add to what we said last week before we look at chapter two. In the natural realm, God created us to function in many ways like he functions. Less than he functions, he didn't make us to be gods, but he created us with some of his abilities. Think about it for a moment. God is a person. The Bible is clear about that. God the Father is a person, God the Son's a person, and God the Holy Spirit's a person. God created us as persons. We all have individual personalities. As I said this morning, Seven and a half billion people and no two have the same fingerprints. Seven and a half billion people and no two have the same DNA. Likewise, there are no two people with the same personality. You know that in your own family. You can have as many children as you want. They all come from the two of you and they'll all be different. God creates different personalities. So God created us as persons in his image, personalities. Now with personalities come some things and I made a short list. God created us with emotion. He created us with logic, with creativity, he created us with a sensitivity to justice. When two little kids are playing and someone's being unfair, what do you hear? That's not fair. Where do they get that from? 
there's a sense of justice built into us because God built it there. You have five and I have one. That's not fair, okay? You took, you took mine that I had and I was playing with it. That's not fair. We have a sense of justice. We got that from God. We have a sense of reason. We, we can reason things out. Now, granted, some people more than others. Sometimes I wonder if people have reason, but we, we, can, we can do what I call deductive reasoning. We have the ability to collect information, process it, and come up to some, some conclusion or some thought. The animals can't do that. God does that. God does that perfectly. Now, we don't do it perfectly, uh, particularly now because we're, we're in sin, but the fact is God created us with all of those abilities. Now, what's happened, you say, well, why isn't society just wonderful if we're created in the image of God? Because sin has destroyed us from what we were created to be. Sin has marred us and sin has, 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 has basically diminished. Listen, sin has diminished all that God created to be wonderful. And I mean in every category. Let's just think about a couple of those emotions. Take that for a minute. Emotions are wonderful, aren't they? I mean, the, the emotion of love and the emotion of friendship and compassion and empathy and, and the emotions of joy and even the emotions of pain are good for us, okay? To, to know pain and to know joy. But what has sin done? Sin has corrupted the very simple, the simple process of emotions. And what happens is people lead with their emotions and they make bad decisions instead of leading with reason and logic. But emotions are good for us. And, and in the world, emotions have been perverted, particularly with love. To love, to know love is godlike, agape love and fellowship love and marriage and love in a relationship in a marriage. But what has the world done? They've turned love into lust. They've turned love into greed. They've turned love into, into gluttony. They've turned love into selfishness. See, sin's done that. But God created us with those natural abilities to, to create and to build. Think about this for a minute. Man has an incredible ability to be constructive, to build things, to put things together. But what does the world do? Sin destroys that. Think of modern medicine. God gave men and women the, the wisdom to create medicine that does good for us. But what does the world do with it? They turn it into illicit uses and recreational drugs. So you see, sin messes up all the things that God created in the natural realm uh, for us to enjoy. Marriage, we could do this all night. God gave us this wonderful, precious relationship between one man and one woman. And what has the world done? In sin, the world has corrupted it and destroyed it with all different forms. And, and, and listen, we could do it. The sin has ruined the natural process, the natural things that God gave us in life. So we're created in the image of God uh, naturally. Uh, secondly, the moral capacity that God gave man. Cats and dogs and giraffes and lions. I, sometimes I like to watch uh, these nature shows where lions and different animals that they discover and they show you how they live. I, I think that's just fascinating. I don't have the time to watch it a lot. And maybe some of you won't appreciate this, but I was watching a video the other night of how lions hunt. You ever watch that? Man, they're ferocious. Can I just say you don't want to be on the other end of that thing? You know, I mean, they, they like chase down gazelles and a pack of lions took down a giraffe. Took them a while to get to its neck. But when they got it down, they got to, you know, do you know what lions do? They like get their prey by the throat and they won't let go until the thing is dead. Whatever it is. Listen, I don't know where I was going at, but let me tell you what, I, well, here's where I was going at. 
the animals, the animals don't have any moral compass. The animals don't have any compassion for anything else. They just know food, right? So the lions hunt and they just kill anything. And what was sad, the one I was watching, here's where I'm going and, and this will make, make you sad. There's a little baby gazelle, you know, a little baby one, like they can't run very fast. And mama ran away because the lions came and gazelles can't fight a lion. So they left the little baby. And the last scene of this baby gazelle is it's nose to nose with the lion, making little noises and the lion's licking his chops. You know, the lion has no compassion for this little gazelle. He's gonna eat lunch. We, on the other hand, are, are created in the image of God with what I call a moral compass. It's a God moral compass. There are many things that we have a conviction about. Even lost men and women know that it's wrong to kill someone or take life or to steal what belongs to somebody else, even though people do it because of sin. The point is God built us with the ability, here it is, to choose right or wrong. We can choose right and not wrong, or we can, in this limited autonomy, choose wrong. That, that is a God-likeness. That's an, that's an image of God created in us. Now, again, sin has messed that up, hasn't it? Because most of the time in our sinfulness, we don't always choose right. Sometimes we choose wrong, but, but in, in God-likeness, God created us to be able to choose right. And we see that in the garden and we'll get to it. So we're created in the image of God, uh, the greatest of God's creation on the planet and uh, created in this moral setting to have a relationship with him, which is the ultimate. God wants to have a relationship with us. And because sin separated us, of course, Jesus came Christmas, we're celebrating it. And he died on the cross to restore that relationship. Now, chapter two goes into the details about how God prepared the earth and then brought about the first man, Adam. And we won't get to it tonight, but he will tell us, as he said in chapter one, he created man, male and female. So we know that God created Adam and then he created Eve. Chapter two is going to tell us all the details of how he did that. And we won't get to Eve tonight, but we'll get to Adam. So look at the first three verses as he recounts the preparation for man to be put on the planet. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because, it had, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now, the idea that it was finished in verse 1, <clears throat> in, in it, it has the idea of completeness, meaning God completed all that he had planned to do. So all of creation was his plan, and, and, it, and on the seventh day it was finished, meaning in the first six literal days, he accomplished everything he had planned and it was complete. Now, completeness also has the idea of being exactly what he wanted it to be, not just finished. Uh, I have known students in classes that I teach who finish the work, but it's not complete. It's different, okay? There's finishing, incomplete, and their grade reflects it. And then there's finishing incompleteness, meaning they did everything they were supposed to do and they did it correctly. When God says he finished here, it means it was complete. It was exactly what he wanted it to be. It was exactly as he intended it to be. All the animals, all of creation, the earth, everything. So it was, it was completed uh, all as God wanted it to be. Now, what do we learn from this? There was no protracted long period of time in creation. Thus, we see again, evolution doesn't fit here. There is no process of evolution. God spoke, matter came into existence, God spoke, Creatures were created, plants grew, fish came, 
in fact, when you study physics, we won't get too heavy into this because it, it hurts to think about it sometimes, but in, in, in the law of thermodynamics, there's several laws of thermodynamics, and the very first one talks about open systems and closed systems. Basically, what you need to know about the first law of thermodynamics is you can't create energy. It, it simply transfers from one form to the other. We don't, we don't create or get rid of energy. Here's the point. In our system that we operate in, in the universe and in the earth, it's a closed system. There's nothing being added and there's nothing being taken away. God created what's here and it functions like it's supposed to function and energy simply goes from one place to the other, from heat to work, you name it, it goes back and forth. I could illustrate it with an engine, but you would get bored, so we won't do that. The fact is God created it and it was complete. It's a closed system, it's finished. The sun does what it does, the stars do what they do, everything stays where it's supposed to stay. And then God rested. What does that mean? He wipe his brow and go, whoo, that was hard work. No, no, that's not what that means. It means that, again, in the, in the completeness of it, he was finished, so he stopped working. It doesn't mean he had to stop working, it just means it's complete, so now I'm done, I'm gonna sit down. It's complete, so I'm, I'm finished. It's what I wanted it to be, so he He sanctified a period of time, a week, and then he said, this day I'm going to sanctify. We created in six days, seventh day I'm going to set it apart. What did he set it apart for? Well, a lot of things, but I'll give you two for sake of time. The first one is he sanctified it or set it apart for a day of recognition or worship of him. Now, we don't see that until we get to the law. Clearly, we don't see that in Moses. But I would submit to you that when we get to Adam, to his boys, Cain and Abel, when they have, what are they doing? Do you remember? What is their fight about? Their offerings, right? So they're coming to God and one's got vegetables and one, you know, you know the deal, right? One has animals, one has vegetables. And they're coming to give an offering to God. God accepts one offering. He doesn't accept the other one. And then one brother, Cain gets mad with his brother and he kills him. Well, okay, put all that aside for a minute because that's usually the part of the story we hone in on. Why are they worshiping? I mean, I don't find anywhere before that where God said, here's how you're going to come worship me, you know, like you did with the Moses and the law. I would submit to you that when Adam sinned and God killed the first two animals or first animal, however many it took to put clothes on them, blood was shed and God, God basically told him, okay, your sins. Okay, here's the point. I, I would suggest to you in the garden of
set aside for Israel the Sabbath day. Now that was the seventh day. And God said on the Sabbath day, I don't want you to do any labor. I don't want you to work. Well, where did, where did that come from? Right here, on the seventh day, God rested. So God said to them, on the seventh day, I want you to rest. I don't want you to do any work. I don't want your servants to do any work. I don't want your farm animals to do any work. I don't want you to work. And then what did God say he wanted them to do? I want you to come worship me. And I want you to concentrate on my word. In fact, the, uh, the Jews have in Deuteronomy called the Shema. And you all are familiar with it. Listen to it very carefully. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Boy, pay attention to that. In the, in the day of law, God said, I want my word in your heart. Listen to this. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk in the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontless before your eyes. Listen, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God said, man, I want, you, I want you thinking about my word and I want you thinking about me. And particularly on the, on the Sabbath day, I don't want you doing anything else but that. Here's what God was telling them. And these three things are powerful. Listen, here's what God was telling them. I did a church in just a moment. God said, I want my law before your eyes all the time. I want, I want you reading it. I want you to see it. I want it in front of you all the time. I want my law fresh in your mind. Well, how does that happen? Because you look at it. And then God said, I want it constant in your heart. Boy, do you see a problem today? Where's everybody's eyes today? Facebook and TikTok and Twitty Bird or whatever. All the apps, all the, all the you know, the texting and the, and the computer and videos, and have you ever stopped to think how many hours in the day you use on that stuff? How many hours do you look at the phone? How many hours do you look at that stuff? God said for Israel on the Sabbath day, the hallowed day, I want your eyes on me. I want your eyes on my word. And when it does, I want it in your heart. Now, why did God want them to do that? Because David said, Lord, I'm going to hide your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. See, God knew this. God knew if his word was before their eyes and in their mind and in their heart, they'd walk right. In other words, their lifestyle would be what God wanted it to be. But when it wasn't, they end up in captivity in Babylon. God said, I want, I want your full attention on the Sabbath day. So don't do anything else. Now, secondly, I believe God set this pattern up. He, he sanctified or set apart the seventh day as a pattern for us, as a sign for us. It was a day of rest. Now, God didn't need to rest, but we need to rest. We need rest. A, a man or a woman can't work 12 hours a day, seven days a week, perpetually, and not suffer poor health, mentally, physically, emotionally. We need rest. We need time to, for our bodies to recover and for our minds to recover. I, I know those here who were in the military in the 80s, early 80s, I remember late 70s, early 80s, we, we would work 12 hours a day, seven days a week, 15 hours a day, seven days a week. And after a while, you just become numb. 
We flew into Japan one time and we had to set up these vans, these mobile vans to support the Marines who were forward in, in, in uh, Korea. And we worked for two and a half days straight with no sleep to put these vans together and get them all hooked up. And I, rem I remember after, I don't, I've not done this many times in my life because I'm a type A, I like to sleep at night and work during the day. But after staying up for a couple of days, you really can't think very well. You know what I mean? Like, you can't, think of, you can't think of simple things. And I don't remember much, but I finally got to go to bed. And when I woke up, I didn't know what day it was. And it probably took me a week to recover from being up for two days. And I was in my early 20s at the time. So the point is, God created us where we need rest. And so God gave us a pattern. I would suggest today another, another area where sin in the world has abused God's creation is is men and women push themselves and they work and they pursue and they work. Why? For the love of money, to have more, to have more stuff, to climb higher on the ladder. And it's all sinful. God created us to have a day of rest. Now, I know you were just waiting for me to get to this. And so let's deal with it. Pastor, how does all that apply to the church today? Well, I'm glad you asked because I wrote a whole page about it. I'm going to tell you right now. First of all, let me say we don't live under the law. We live on our day of grace. There's no covenant in the law. There's no Sabbath day like God gave Israel that says, hey, you have to do this on any particular day. However, comma, Jesus was resurrected on the first day of the week, wasn't he? And from that resurrection day, the church started meeting. When the church was born at Pentecost, the church started meeting on the first day of the week to do what? Celebrate his resurrection. Now, again, there's no legal code that says we have to show up at any particular place at any particular time because we're under grace. But I will tell you what the Bible says about the church in the New Testament in particular. We are to come together. In fact, I wrote a little list. Let me just read it to you for the sake of time. Number one, the benefit of being in the fellowship of Christ, of being consistent in the fellowship of Christ is spiritual fellowship. I don't have a whole lot in agreement in my personality with a lost world. You know why? Because God made me a new creation on the inside. Now I have a lot in fellowship in common with you because you're a born again child of God and I'm a born again child of God and I can have fellowship with you. And we have spiritual fellowship and that's encouraging. I'll give you another reason. When we gather on the first day of the week as a church, it's good for spiritual encouragement. Spiritual encouragement. We encourage one another. We sharpen one another as, as the proverb says, iron sharpens iron. And so spiritual fellowship, spiritual encouragement. Hey, here's one, spiritual accountability. Spiritual accountability. I need accountability. One of the reasons we have elders in this church is I need accountability. We need accountability with one another. So we have spiritual accountability in the church. Hey, here's one. When we gather in the church, we have spiritual growth through the teaching of God's word. Spiritual growth. I need spiritual growth. You need spiritual growth. Here's another one. Spiritual service and deployment of our spiritual gifts. Where else are you going to use your spiritual gift if you don't use it in church? The people where you work in your office don't want to know that you can sing in the choir. They don't care. The people in your office don't care that you can teach the Bible. Now, I, mean, I, I mean, honestly, where are you going to use your spiritual gifts if you don't use them in church? Finally, number six, we come to God 
as a, as a body of believers, and the Bible says we offer to him a spiritual sacrifice of praise. So we come together and we worship God. Now you say, well, you know, what does the Bible say? I don't have to, listen, you don't have to do anything because you answer to God, you don't answer to me. But let me just read you a verse. Matter of fact, I'll read two of them. And you know this verse, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. The writer to the Hebrews said this, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. So consider one another, not self, one another to stir up the good works. We come here and we stir one another up in the spirit and we stir one another up to serve. Listen to this, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some, even in the first century, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I'm gonna give you four negatives that happen when we don't, when we don't, when as Christians we're not active in a body of believers somewhere. I'm gonna give you four negative things that happen. Number one, we're in direct disobedience to this passage. Number one, that's it. Now you can argue with me about it, see the book. It just said right here, don't forsake assembling yourselves together, period. End of discussion. Number two, Christians who try to live the Lone Ranger life are in spiritual decline, not incline. They'll always be in spiritual decline. They'll always be struggling. Why? Because they're not in the body of believers, they're not being encouraged. Number three, those Christians will be in a state of spiritual unfaithfulness as they waste their spiritual gifts that could benefit and grow the kingdom of God. And number four, a state of susceptibility to all forms of symbol lifestyle. Christians who get out there on their own and are not part of a church and not living in the body and not functioning in the body of believers are susceptible to the enemy's attack because they're the little lamb that's running around there all by themselves. Okay, and Satan will pick them off. So it's directly applicable. God set aside a Sabbath day, made it part of the law. For us, it's the first day of the week. And I'll just tell you this and we'll move on very quickly. Christians who choose the world and what they want to do over being in the body of Christ and being active in the body of Christ, their, their testimony, their testimony suffers because of that. It suffers because of that. So we should be here whenever certainly we're able to and when God allows. So now the history of creation continues in verses four to six. Look at it very quickly. This is the history. The word history there could be generations. It's the same, same idea. This is the generation or the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up on the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. What he's saying here is these are the generations or the, or the history of how God created as told in chapter one, really in the first three days. Here's the planet, it's covered in water. He separates the water. He makes the dry land. Uh, before there was even any vegetation, the vegetation comes and there's no man to till the ground. So he's simply recounting the circumstances and how it was. So here's the planet, here's the grass, here's the fish, here's all the stuff and there's no man. Again, excludes any possibility of evolution. And young people, I'm gonna say that over and over and over again because in school, they're gonna tell you we got here over billions and billions and billions of years and I'm telling you from the word of God, we got here in six days, period, that's it. And the world has trouble with that. Well, they always got trouble with God but I don't have any trouble with God's word and I don't have any trouble with him doing it, okay? So six days, here's all these things. And then an interesting verse here I wanna to touch on. It says in verses five and six that God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was a mist that came up and watered the ground. 
Now, I've had discussions with folks about that um, here in the last few weeks, in fact, and others at the time. What does that mean? What does it mean it didn't rain? Well, it means like what it said. It didn't rain. There are two, two camps on this thing, all right? Number one, because the earth was, we believe, before the flood, a tropical climate all over because of the water vapor and, and how the world was, that it's very likely that, that there was so much moisture that it did like a fog come up in the mornings, wet the ground, wet the, wet the dew. There's indications when we get to the flood that the people were unfamiliar with rain, that when Noah said, hey, it's gonna rain for 40 days and 40 nights, they went, well, that's never happened before, so we're not worried about that. Every indication that it had not literally rained in a hydrological system like we know it, meaning water evaporating. But that does not mean that the mist didn't include some kind of rain. So what I'm telling you is this. I've read fairly extensively on both positions. Really doesn't matter, okay? Here's the point. God watered the ground with a mist. Whether some of it fell out of the air, I don't know. But I don't think it rained before the flood like we know rain, like thunderstorm clouds and, and you know, rain. And I don't think that happened before the flood. That would be my position. Now, I want to finish the rest of our time with verse 7 because that's the one I wanted to get to. Now look at verse 7. All that's ready. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, a living soul. People say, where did man come from? That's the question everybody wants to know. How did we get here? Why are we here? Where are we going? Well, I can tell you how we got here. Dirt. And God. God took up some dirt. And it says here, he formed man. Now the phrase here in the Hebrew is the same kind of word that would be used of an artist making a painting or an artist making a sculptor. In other words, God made a masterpiece. God took soil and he formed a human body. He formed a man's body. There it is, made it. There's Adam, no life, just a body. Now in that body, God formed all the parts that he would need. There's a heart and lungs and a liver and stomach and, and, and vascular system and a brain and all of that stuff there, eyeballs, everything. None of it evolved. It was complete, 100% ready to be used. He's laying there, but it has no life. It's not animated. It's just, a, just flesh and bone and, and, and some blood. And nothing's happening. And then God breathed into them the breath of life. Now, we in the King James, it says he became a living soul, be careful. Soul also means the same as animals who have animation, okay? In other words, God animated his body. God gave it life. God breathed into him his first heartbeat, his first thought, the first, first everything, first breath. God caused it to happen. Now, here's where, here's where our imaginations can run wild, and it's kind of fun sometimes to do this. Can you imagine for just a moment, Adam opened his eyes for the first time. What in the world was he thinking? I mean, listen, God created him with the appearance of age, whatever age it was. He's a full-grown man. And God gave him life, and he woke up for the first time and, and had existence. What a marvelous thing. Let me tell you this before we deal with that, because I'll, get, I'll forget to leave. I want to I touch on this. When God created a body... Just think of how marvelous that is for a moment. And we don't have time. 
I'll just tell you two things. How about your brain? What do you think about your brain? You say, well, I don't think about it much because it works. Let me tell you something about your brain. It has 100 billion neurons in it. 100 billion in your brain. The information processing power of your brain, if you, because we only use a small portion of the capacity of our brain. And for some of us, that's pretty evident, okay? But, but the point is our brain has much more capacity than we can use. And I think that's because of sin. I think Adam had full use of his brain, full capacity before sin, and now ours is limited. But think about this, the neocortex part of your brain, and, and I'm not a physician, I read this, okay? So there's, neocortex of your brain, part of your brain that controls most of your consciousness uh, and language capabilities, understanding and consciousness is 76% of your brain, okay? One piece of your brain, the size of a grain of sand, contains 100,000 neurons and 1 billion synapses all communicating with one another. Now here's the point. God formed, out of dirt, God formed that and created a brain. Now think about your, your circulatory system. An adult has 62,500 miles worth of blood vessels in an adult body. That's magnificent, isn't it? That's just wonderful. Listen to this, one drop of blood contains five million red blood cells, one drop. I read a thing that said one red blood cell will make 250,000 trips around your body before it's absorbed back into bone marrow. Well, that's a hard working blood cell, isn't it? 250,000 trips. Listen, God, when God created Adam's body, he didn't miss anything. I mean, man, he, he just created it perfect, a masterpiece. And now let me get back to when he woke up because I almost got ahead of myself. Let me give you a few things about, about Adam that I think are wonderful to think about, and then we'll close. When he woke up, he was created with the appearance of age. So that means when he woke up and stood up for the first time, he's a grown man. Don't know how old he was. Don't know what that age is. Jesus was crucified, you know, 33 years old, somewhere in that neighborhood. People ask sometimes, what age will our resurrection body be? I don't know, but said we'll look like Jesus, so I'm guessing somewhere around 30 years old, 30, 33, be my guess if I was just guessing. But I don't know how old we'll be in our resurrection body, but I do know this, God said we'll look good. So I'm good with that, all right? Whatever that age is. He said we will be restored to perfection. So Adam, he's created. Now think about it. Adam in his day of creation, his birthday, if you will, when he's created whole, He's only two minutes old. He's a grown man. He's standing there. He's created in perfection. He's sinless. And he has complete capacity probably to understand things we can't begin to comprehend because he's in a sinless state. So he's talking to God. And don't you want to know how that conversation went? Adam wakes up. God says, hello, Adam. I just made you. Well, wonderful. And I'm God and you're Adam. I don't know how the conversation went, no idea, but there had to be some conversation, right? Adam's awake, God's there. Adam had, I believe, number two, unlimited capacity to learn. Unlimited capacity to learn. Now, he wasn't created with all knowledge, because that's God. However, I do believe God created Adam with an unlimited capacity 
to ask questions and to understand and to learn. And God took joy in teaching him, having fellowship with him and telling him. Can you imagine walking around the garden? Hey, God, what is that thing? What does it do? Oh, Adam, I'm glad you asked about that, man. I'm real, I like that. I created that. Let me tell you how that thing works. Oh, and that thing over there really tastes good. Why don't you have some of that? I mean, can you imagine the conversations are going around the garden and Adam's talking about creation? God, I see the stars up there. What are those things? Oh, well, I put those out there, Adam. I just, you know, I created them too. Kind of like, I just put them out there. Aren't they beautiful? And, I, and Adam had all this capacity. And all that's diminished. Adam named all he looked you know well whatever I mean he, he he had great intelligence I don't think he had an Apple laptop to remember what he wrote down I don't think he had you know I don't think maybe you know, I can't use this name so he was smart and probably the best Perfect fellowship with God. Perfect fellowship with God. Listen, just think about that, and we'll close. Perfect. God would share knowledge with him of the universe. Can you imagine? Well, imagine it because that's what we're going to have when we get there. Imagine it because that's what we're going to have in our resurrection body. You see, watch this, and we'll close. Jesus came at Christmas. Born, the baby, to give it all back to us. Give us back the perfection, the sinlessness, the perfect eternal body, the perfect fellowship with God, the intelligence, the intellect. There are smart people in the world today. Some of them, we call them geniuses. They take a test and their IQ is off the chart. When I get my resurrection body, I'll be smarter than them. I'm not right now, I'll tell you. You see, when we get our bodies, Jesus came to give us all that back. Let me close with this. God is a, God is a great creator. You just look around. He's a great creator. Sin messed it up, but he's going to fix it. He already has. And we're just waiting for it to come to culmination. If you're here tonight or you're watching online and you've never been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out. Listen to me, you're going to miss the greatest thing you could ever have. Forgiveness of sin, that's wonderful. But that fellowship with God, that restored relationship, and to spend eternity with him, don't miss out on that. Don't, don't miss out on that for the trinkets of this world, for sin and all the things that Satan would put in front of you. Just, it's not worth it. It's not a fair trade. No, come to Jesus while you have an opportunity. Pray tonight. Confess your sin. Ask Jesus to save you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you
thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. If I can pray with you, you come. The Savior is waiting.